Hello, welcome to AUSU Open Mic. AUSU Open Mic is a podcast brought to you by the Athabasca University Students Union. Uh, we represent undergraduate students at Athabasca University from coast to coast to coast and all around the world. Today, I'm, I'm privileged to bring you Dr. Henry Tsang, uh, who presented to AUSU on Asian Heritage in Canada's Built Environment, Why It Matters. This was a part of Her Asian Heritage Month at AUSU. Dr. Sang is an assistant professor here at Athabasca University and an award-winning architect in the uh, Rake Center for Architecture. His design, teaching, and research work explores the intersections between sustainability, health, and culture in the built environment. He teaches virtual design studios and coordinates courses in the communication, professional, theory, history, and technical streams. So welcome, welcome. everyone. Yeah, thank you everyone for coming to my presentation tonight. Um, this is a presentation that I put together for this event, and I think is a very personal topic to me because uh, being an Asian uh, person uh, growing up in Canada and who who entered the field of architecture and kind of finding my place uh, in, in this industry. So the topic of my ta talk is Asian heritage in Canada's built environment and why it matters and why we should know about it, why we should learn about it today. So I start my presentation by thinking about my name because a couple of days ago, and even this uh, right before this talk, someone asked me, well, Henry, how do you pronounce your name? So I just casually say, well, Henry Tang, you know, that's how I've always pronounced my name for the last 40 years. That's how school taught me to say my name because this is how it's spelled in English. Um, funny enough, I was born in Montreal and I grew up in Montreal. And um, the teachers there also taught me that my name was supposed to be said as Henri Tsang. So, you know, throughout my whole high school and elementary school, I thought my name was supposed to be said as Henri instead of Henry. So it's been, you know, growing up with this name has kind of been uh, a very interesting experience because that's not how my dad pronounces my name. He says it's Henry Tsang. And I say it's Henry Tang. That's how my teachers tell me. So it's been a struggle bet between, well, is this, am I supposed to say the name how the, the society wants me to say it, how English people want me to say it, or is, should I abide to the original pronunciation uh, from its Chinese roots? So th this is my actual name or my name of origin. And I, I wonder if there's anyone in the audi audience who actually can read this. But in Chinese, it's read um, Zhang Heng Yip. And of course, Henry was taken from this uh, rough translation of the Chinese pronunciation of Heng Yip, and it kind of became Henry just because it sounded somewhat similar. And my dad thought it would make it make my life a lot easier if I had an, an, um, an English name or, or sort of a French name that could, could be pronounced both in English and French. But of course, I've never used this name. The only person who uses this name is my grandmother and my, my grandparents. Um, but a name that I've been a little bit ashamed of using because nobody would pronounce it properly. And then, you know, you would get some second looks about, you know, what did you say? Or, you know, it didn't, didn't really translate well. So I never really used this name kind of out of a bit of shame, a bit of embarrassment, a little bit of... Um, resistance to actually being connected to, to, to being Chinese. 
one other aspect is that the name actually meant celebration of achievements. And once you translate it to English, you completely lose that meaning of the Chinese characters. So anyway, with that in mind, I pursued a, a career in architecture. And I wanted to start this talk by talking a little bit about history. Um, the history of Canadian, Canadian uh, immigration, uh, Chinese immigration to Canada and the development of Canadian Chinatowns started roughly in 1858, about 170 years ago. For those of you familiar with this, uh, with this history, you know that the original Chinese people who moved to Cal uh, Canada came for uh, two reasons. The first wave was a rush um, to find gold. There was the gold rush that was found in Eastern Canada and Eastern, um, Western Canada and Western US. Um, most of it being started from San Francisco and then moved all up and down the West Coast of North America. So that's where the, the first wave of Chinese immigration came. Then the second wave came about uh, 30 years later when Canada was building the CP Railway. So once the um, the gold rush was finished, Canada wanted to build a transnational um, railway from BC all the way to uh, Eastern Canada. So that was the reason why they came. There, there was a history of slavery, um, of racism, because these these were con these people were considered cheap labor, and the local community at that time, primarily white, felt like they were a threat because they came to steal their jobs and um, establish their communities in their lands. So in 1885, there was something called the head tax. The head tax was that every Chinese who, who came after that had to pay a tax just because they were Chinese or because they were Asian in general. There was also something called the Exclusion Act, meaning that any Chinese, um, any person of Chinese descent was not allowed to buy land, own land, own a business, nor um, participate in elections. So Chinese people were pretty much excluded from uh, participating fully in society. Um, and they were also taken away from, um, you know, owning any properties. It got a little better after World War II because Chinese, um, Chinese people also went to war with Canadians um, and they were considered uh, allies. And they came back from the war and all of this was taken away. And um, the Canadian government recognized that they had been kind of unfair with the Chinese community. So they um, took away uh, the head tax and took away the Exclusion Act. So moving on to more uh, contemporary uh, today, 1985 to present, we see a lot more immigrants coming from Hong Kong, from China, a lot more wealthier uh, immigrants who come here to establish, um, establish their communities and so also start their careers. All in all, just to find a more kind of um, a better life in Canada. So today, changes and challenges for today and the future, we see that there's also a demographic shift and economic shift, uh, what Chinatowns are, and um, because now they're not used the same way, and a lot of the demographics of the people, Chinese people don't really want to live in Chinatowns anymore. Gentrification, meaning that the development around Chinatowns being in very central areas 
have been compressed by the pressures of density and economic development. And also um, a kind of renewed anti-Asian racism that has been um, caused by uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about this. This is just to give you an overview of what happened in, in the last 170 years um, in a two minute slide. So I came to, to the world <laughs> um, in 1977. My parents are from Hong Kong and this is on the left, it's my parents who just immigrated to Canada and that's me in the stroller. And uh, this is a picture in Chinatown, Montreal. This is Clark Street for those of you who actually know Chinatown in Montreal. And this is a street of course, where, you know, pretty central in Chinatown and all the great restaurants and, and so on. So this is where I kind of grew up uh, with this kind of weekly pilgrimage to Chinatown. Um, growing up with, you know, my parents being Chinese and uh, finding the best Chinese food and being surrounded by our own communities. This was uh, the Chinese school in Montreal. So this is where I kind of went to school every Saturday uh, afternoons. In the mornings, we would go to Chinatown for dim sum. In the afternoon, we would go to school. For 14 years, I was here learning Chinese every Saturday morning when all of my friends were on ski trips and weekend to the park and kind of doing cool stuff. This is where I spent most of my childhood. And why I say this is because it was really about um, a wish from my parents that I would inherit their culture and their language. And I think that's the story that I want to kind of tell today is one that is about immigration, but one about people who come to Canada in search of a better life, but also one that tries to preserve their own culture as, as much as they can. So they, they don't assimilate to, um, they come here, they want to assimilate and adapt to Canadian life, but at the same time, they don't want to forget their roots and their cultures. So I came here to talk to you about Chinatowns and Asian architecture. And this is something that has been uh, one of my interests in my research for the last several years because um, of, you know, I think this is a very personal topic, but also one that I feel has much more much more larger implications in answering questions about what is Canadian architecture and how do we address the, uh, the issue of culture and representation in the built environment. I show you this because it's a very fascinating development of how Chinatowns have emerged. And it, you know, all of the Chinatowns are a very similar aesthetic and it's not a coincidence. For one thing, Chinatown is actually not a replica of China. Chinatown is not a replica of China. So if you imagine Shanghai, Beijing, any Chinese city, if you take any bits and parts of it, it's not a reproduction of a Chinese city or a Chinese town. In about 1900s, when the first immigrants from China actually came to Canada, this is what China would have looked like at that time. This is the town of Kaiping in China. This is where my mom is from. Um, a city where there's a lot of uh, architecture that is very low rise, that's very modest in its texture and in its colors. 
it doesn't have it doesn't have the colors of the yellow and the red and the dragons and the phoenixes like you see in Chinatowns. And this was what it would have looked like around that time. So you can see it's not really a translation of what Chinese people knew of how those towns looked like, and they didn't bring that architecture to um, to Canada or the U.S. So that that um, that thesis is is false. So just to give you some um, a little bit more context in what uh, who these people were, as I mentioned, they came here as labor workers. They came here to do uh, mining work and also working on the railway. And of course, because they had the small community that was developing, they had their their shops, right? They had the washing, uh, the laundry shops, like little shops for food and little shops for, you know, just so that they can uh, survive in Canada. They had also established a whole, a whole system of amenities that surrounded their communities. So I, I think that, you know, the, the general idea is that people came to North America, they came to San Francisco, they came to Vancouver to find a better life because they were actually not, they didn't want to come. Or, I mean, they were invited to come to do labor work on the premise that they thought they would make a fortune. So San Francisco has a nickname called Gamsan, which translate to the Golden Mountain. And... Chinese people were told that if you come on this boat and go to the Golden Mountain, you will be able to dig as much gold as you want. And their intention was really to bring that gold back to their hometown so that they could, you know, bring the fortune back, which is kind of like how most immigrants would think uh, to do is to, to find a better life for themselves and for their family. So it's really a search of a better life. But while they're here, there's also a story of assimilation, adaptation, social acceptance. And you see on the picture on the right, you know, the people trying to learn the language, ice hockey, you know, whatever Canadians do. There was a whole story of, of that as well. But as I explained to you before, it, it not everyone was very welcoming to these immigrants because they thought, thought they were a threat. They thought they were, they came to take their jobs away. They were very cheap. The labor was very cheap. They were willing for, to work for nothing. So in around uh, 1885, when we talked about the Exclusion Act, these were the type of cartoons that kind of came out in the newspapers and in books. They were called the Yellow Peril. So they were kind of depicted as these demons who came from another country to kind of like, you know, um, steal their uh, their land and their their jobs, which is you know uh, uh, a narrative that we still hear about today, right? Like cheap labor from Mexico and other countries coming to steal our jobs, and this is something that I think is um, something we need to reflect upon. So, talking about Chinatowns, the first so-called Chinatown was a name that uh, that came out of San Francisco. And I said that um, people who came were firstly uh, miners who came here for the gold rush. And the original Chinatown didn't look didn't look at all like what we see today. As you see here, this is a picture of the original China uh, Chinese community. It was very modest in its architecture. The shops were just basically a little shed and a little kind of um, canopy. There was no, no um, decorative elements that kind of established this as the Chinatown as we know today. 
So what happened is that in 1906, there was a huge earthquake that ravaged uh, San Francisco and the whole city was torn down. Not only were there uh, earthquakes, but there were fires as well. So the whole city was pretty much um, in, uh, in redevelopment after that. So what happened is that Chinatown was also torn down and San Francisco thought that, well, this is the best time to kind of move San Fr uh, move Chinatown to another location, somewhere where it's less central and less developed and, and just move the Chinese people there. However, there was one very interesting fact is that China Chinatown in San Francisco was very lucrative because they were importing a lot of Chinese goods like vases and tea and like Chinese, exotic Chinese goods was very popular at that time for people who were very interested in this kind of exotic, um, new exotic place that they didn't, they didn't, they can't travel there, but they, they, they know about, they knew about it and wanted to learn about it and wanted to have their things. So Chinatown was redeveloped into a commercial space, a space that was basically um, like a theme park that catered to white people to sell oriental things. So you can imagine is this is basically like the IKEA of, of Chinese stuff, you know? So if you look at this building, one of the first buildings that was designed in so-called Chinese style of architecture was designed to be a commercial building that says Chinese stuff is sold here. Um, so that's why you have this kind of extravagant architecture. It was because it was a commercialization, almost like a brand, um, almost like a McDonald's sign to say that this is where you can get um, those goods that you're looking for. However, you can see that on the right, this is a rendering from an architect at that time. All of the architects at the time were white, obviously. And the only type of architecture that white architects really knew about was religious architecture like the pagoda that you see on the left and the imperial palace that you see on the right. We didn't have Google, we didn't have encyclopedias that depicted more than that. So architects at the time were only based on their very limited understanding of what Chinese architecture was, which was um, the pagoda and, and imperial architecture. So this is like, you know, you're designing European architecture and you, you just know Buckingham Palace and Basilica Notre Dame. <laughs> that, that was your repertoire that you had to work on. But then you come up with, you know, a, a sort of a version of that with what you had um, the materials that you had and the skills that you had. So scholar Hongyan Yang from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee says that Chinatown's architecture is what white architects perceive of Chinese architecture. And that's exactly what it is. It's really just a reproduction of an ima imagination of what Oriental architecture could have been like, but it didn't really matter because as long as people saw these spaces as different as somewhat extravagant. Um, they recognize this space as being so-called Chinese and that's Chinatown. So this kind of type of architecture spread all across North America because San Francisco did so well 
in merchandising Chinatown and merchandising, commercializing the Chinese, uh, their Chinese products that all North America just copied San Francisco's Chinatown and said, well, this is one way that we can survive as Chinese people. We can sell stuff to white people as long as we make it and we brand ourselves a Chinatown, a place where we can sell stuff, food, um, products, and, and whatnot. So is it a theme park? Absolutely. It was designed as a theme park. And this is Epcot Center and Walt Disney World. And you can see it's a very similar um, reference to very similar things, which is the, um, the Chaoyang Gate uh, and also the Temple of Heaven that you see in the background, which are all uh, imperial um, uh, elements of architecture. This is Montreal. And you can see the same kind of type of architecture that references imperial architecture. And in the more modern era, in the more close to 1980s, Chinese people became more wealthy and they started to own their own properties and their own lands. There was a search for authenticity in some ways. We don't want to have like, a pagoda that's, that doesn't look like an actual pagoda in China. In China. We don't want to have another uh, weird looking um, roof that doesn't look like an actual Chinese building. So this is a very interesting building because the Holiday Inn in Montreal that was built in the 1980s actually had um, carpenters come from China to build those two pavilions on the top of the roof. They wanted to, the, them to look perfectly like the ones in China. And this is a search for authenticity. We often, we often feel like Chinatown is a little bit tacky and even myself was a little bit ashamed to tell my friends I was going to Chinatown again. Um, but the, the Chinese people in the 1980s were consistently looking for authenticity in some ways because now it's, it's a different narrative, the Chinese people actually own these spaces and they actually have a, a voice in, in terms of how they want to design them. So these were actually perfectly designed to replicate garden pavilions, referencing imperial architecture again. This is the Forbidden City Supreme Hall. And you can see that it's the same details around the balconies and the same details of the roof. The funny thing is that if you think about this a little bit, you know, you see these beautiful, beautiful pavilions on the roof, you would think that there was, there was a beautiful garden on the roof that you can go to. But if you just look on Google Maps and look at the roof view, you see that there's actually nothing there. These garden pavilions were designed only as something to be seen from the ground, again, as markers of Chinatown, almost like marking your territory. But these were actually just mechanical rooms covering, you know, the air conditioning and the heating systems and the water tanks and stuff like that. So it's actually not a very nice place to be and you can't actually go up there. So in a way, this is a little bit of a display of a place, almost like an icon or just a banner. This is uh, Calgary's, Calgary's Chinese Cultural Center. And again, this roof that you see here is very elaborate outside and inside. 22 artisans came from Beijing to work on this roof. 
and they were the actual um the actual contractors that are doing the maintenance of the temple of heaven in Beijing. This is a temple where the emperor would used to go to go for prayer um, to pray. So this is a perfect replica of this here actually in Calgary. So again, this is a search for authenticity that we're trying to replicate things perfectly because we don't want to have those, um, you know, the, the misinterpretation of those, you know, very sacred spaces that we have um, back in, 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 in our so-called homeland. Another example is this one. This is the Montreal's Chinese hospital. You can see that there is uh, the moon gate in the front and you see that central atrium uh, where you have the balconies. This is a more kind of modern interpretation. I think we've also moved towards a sort of abstraction of Chinese architecture into something that's, you know, we can still recognize the pagoda in those kind of layers and the angles, but it's not a replica anymore. It's kind of reinterpreted into um, modern or postmodern architecture with local materials, local techniques. And I think this is also, a, you know, a, a transition that we're seeing um, in, in our architecture today. To push it even further, this building was actually designed with feng shui in mind. Feng shui is like the Chinese principle of uh, water and, and wind that you study how, like, um, how the principles of the environment brings you uh, luck and fortune through the spaces. So all of the angles were considered and all of the placement of the windows was something that was considered in, in its design. So the Chinatown style, just to kind of recapitulate um, what our finding was through this research is that it's a way for the Chinese population to preserve their communities by marking their territories. So people wanted to become a membership of Chinatown because it protected their community. The theme, the exotic theme park kind of idea helped them, helped them grow because it was a way for them to do business with the white population. However, it's also a North American imagination, imagination of China designed by white, white architects. And I think this is important because to me, this becomes important for us to preserve Chinatowns and recognize it as part of our heritage because there's a past of racism and there's a motivation behind how these buildings were designed. And it's it's a it's a missing chapter in a history that I think needs to be recognized in some way that this type of architecture emerged from um, uh, different policies and, and ways of, of how Chinese population tried to protect themselves. So I'm not gonna go too much in detail because now I go a little bit into my design processes what if, we what if we design a Chinatown building today? And I talk about this idea of meaningful storytelling. I think that if we designed Chinatown today, we have to consider that Chinatown is in a different place today. We're in different different kind of time in our history that we need to think about a more wholesome storytelling of how we tell the story of the past, our present and our future in the way we design buildings. So this is our design team. I hired a couple of research assistants to work on this and made sure that, you know, 
I had a couple of Chinese Canadians working on this and I wanted them to showcase their Chinese names, but also to, to really think about three themes of culture and identity, equity, diversity, inclusion, and accessibility, but also this idea of historic and heritage preservation. We have a pilot project that we're working on right now with the Calgary Chinese Elderly Citizens Community Center, in which we are thinking about all these things, you know, looking at history and what was the, um, the story behind the community that thrived throughout the three relocations of Chinatown in Calgary? You see on the right, there was three locations of Chinatowns in different eras. According to the, the construction of the CP rail that you see on the bottom, but also as the city grew, Chinatown was pushed further and further from the city center all the way up to the river. And I think that's why you see a lot of Chinatowns that are close to rivers, because that was the boundaries of the cities at that time. That was as far as they could go. This was a research of all of the historic buildings in Chinatown. We're trying to look for ideas of style and trying to recognize what we needed to preserve in the, the, the story of how we kind of elaborate around a building in Chinatown. And also doing a, a walking tour of the current um, Chinatown and how we, um, how some of these buildings have preserved their kind of identity. And one thing that was striking is that if you see on the bottom left here, the huge Harry Hayes building, which is a federal building at the corner of Chinatown, is that we see more and more in different Chinatowns that huge developments are being built around Chinatown. You'd see that at the Guy Favreau building in Montreal, the Harry Hayes building in Calgary, these huge governmental buildings were built at the edge of Chinatown to limit its growth. And of course, you know, because the cities were growing all across Canada, um, city planners didn't want Chinese Chinatowns to grow any further. So they established gates. Gates become an entrance to Chinatown, but they also become the limit of expansion to Chinatown. And also they had these huge developments like federal buildings. Also on the top left, you see these huge towers on the south side of Calgary's Chinatown that's compressing onto the low rise buildings of, of the historic Chinatown. And this is happening all across Canada. So we went on a tour with our students to look at the communities, and this is a community uh, association in Chinatown. You see here some people doing mahjong, but this is really the heart of Chinese people. This is where they, you know, the clubhouses where they kind of hang out. There's two remnants in Calgary's Chinatown that tells this history. And it's, it's very sad because, you know, you would expect that Chinese people today would be more proud to kind of tell their story and say, okay, we've thrived through all these hardships and came, came, came out and, and we are doing well today. But this, these two art pieces are actually in hi, quite hidden areas within the Chinatown. On the left, you see here a mural that's in a back alley behind like the garbage and the stinky restaurants that tells the story of the building of the, the railway and the hardships that they suffered. And, and it, it was called courage. And two of the letters are actually hidden by parking um, panels now. You don't even see the O and the E. The right one is a depiction of the Golden Mountain that I talked to you about. San Francisco was the Golden Mountain, and this is a sculpture that's that was built as a little cone 
to kind of symbolize the golden mountain. And you can see here on the bottom, the ship where they came and they were workers. In the middle, you see the three dates that I told you about, the date of the head tax, the date of the Exclusion Act, and when it was repealed. So these are dates that are very important in Canadian Chinese history because it's a story of, of, of racism and, and exclusion that we can't repeat in the future. And then on top is, you know, a story of, of healing. So this is the building I'm working on right now. So I, I went along and did some renderings and, and scanning of the building. And one thing that's very important in our, in our process to do a, a new building for Chinatown today is community engagement. Not enough architects talk to the actual people to really understand who they are and how they should build their buildings. So we, we did seven workshops with the community with under different themes. One looking at what are their values and their needs, one about history and legacy, one about their seniors and accessibility because this is a senior center, culture and identity, then going into a design concept, and now we're working on ideas of sustainability. How do we make this more modern and energy efficient and working with the environment is also very important. So this is the site plan. We can see how it's located. It's right by the river and uh, on the center street where you have the, um, the bridge that goes to the north. So we kind of see that this building is almost like a watchtower looking over Chinatown. We see that you know, in our design concept, we want to make it as part of the concept that um, it, it's it's a it's a building that is symbolizing a, a an anchor to uh, the community. So these are some student sketches. So we're trying to find a way we can tell the story through the language of architecture, through its style, through its shape. And also preserving the original style of the architecture. I think there's so many things we want to consider in this building that you know we're going through this exercise of just sketching out all the ideas that we can come up with. And some studies of massing, how we can actually um, create more space for the functions of the building as well. And accessibility, because we know that this building needs to fulfill its needs for uh, its seniors. So we have to kind of look at improving the entrances of the ramp, you know, when we think about accessibility, we want to make sure that everyone experiences the building the same way. So you're not going in through, through a, an, a, a beautiful entrance if you're abled, but then you have to walk to the back door if you're disabled, uh, because that's where the ramp is. And it's just like an add on to the building. We want the whole experience of the building to be the same for everyone. And I think that's what we talk about when we talk about equity, diversity, and inclusion buildings. So we, we checked all the doors, we checked all the washrooms, we checked all the elevators to make sure that everything was compatible to um, people with disabilities. So these are all of our sketches around that. And then looking at activity spaces, what can, how can we animate these spaces? You know, we know that this space in the front People like to do Tai Chi there um, or martial arts. And there's a community garden. There's like a rooftop garden. There's also a temple in this building, you know, so people come here as a praying space as well. There's even two temples. There's a Christian temple and a Buddhist temple. So we have to kind of consider two religions, uh, a whole spectrum of people with different ages 
and abilities and uh, different activities. So this is a very, very challenging project. But these are some of the uh, renderings that we came up with, looking at uh, space and looking at how we could articulate this language uh, through its facade, but also modernizing its language. And also this idea of changing the narrative. We talked about, well, how can we actually come up with meaningful storytelling through architecture? I think there's three points that we need to consider. One, we need to enhance our learning, make sure that we have the facts to work with, historical and cultural research through this process, connecting with the community, a lot of community engagement, talking to the people and actually extracting what their values and their needs are but also making sure that this process is a co-creation. We have to make sure that we have them participate in, the, participate in the design as well. So this is what I'm proposing to architects. You know, a lot of you might not be architects, but I think that the process could be um, important for policymakers and also planners and people who are involved in designing these new spaces. And even if you're just uh, a user of these spaces. So this is, what I say is storytelling is not to make up a story, but to assemble a meaningful, authentic, and complete one through its architectural design and its craft. Because design for architecture is the plans, the blueprints, but also in the making of the building as well. If we can think of it almost like, you know, we're, we're making something together, makes, makes the building a lot more meaningful and more valuable. I'm just going to show you one more quick project, I don't want to take up much more time, but this project is called the Calgary Japanese Community Center that I'm working on as well at the same time. The same research that I've been doing, looking at the past and the people who are, who are using um, these buildings, who are they and who they represent. Understanding Japanese aesthetics, this idea of shibusa is the simplicity in things that are not perfect. So looking at things that are like uh, like flowers or vegetation, that kind of um, deteriorate over time, there's a beauty in that. The philosophy of, of Zen as well, this change in time, that things through time also kind of change as well and, and how we can bring that beauty into buildings. For example, the circles that you see on the bottom is that you can draw a circle and even if, it, there's, if it's not a perfect circle, because you did it with your hand, there is a beauty in the imperfection and that's the philosophy of Zen aesthetics finding beauty in the imperfections. Japanese virtues of kizuna, which is to bond, kakehashi, which is to, um, to bridge, and the wa, which is the harmony. And bringing it into architecture, we talk about the ma, which is the, um, uh, the harmony of mass and void. And in architecture, we mean by, what we mean by that is that it's not that you have a lot of buildings, that buildings become beautiful. It has to have a balance of empty spaces and, and built space. And you can see that in this painting. You can see that there's very little strokes in it. You can see very dark areas, which is like the density, built spaces, and then everything else is white and you leave it blank. And that's how you see beauty and balance through mass and void. Layering and framing is a Japanese principle of space, how you connect to the nature with different layers and also this idea of threshold threshold mean that means that you're not perfectly inside or outside there's always a space where you can have a space to appreciate that you're not 
completely in nor completely out. Um, this is the building that I'm doing right now, looking at the context, materials, Canadian materials, how we can interpret that into the building. Um, the same concepts of kakihashi, which is the bridge, enso, which is a circle, and then neighborhood, trying to understand density of space. So this is the final design that I came up with is a circular building that represents the enso, which is the circle that we saw, one that uh, looks at Japanese architecture with the materials, what we call shosugiban is how we burn cedar to protect it rather than putting chemicals on it. You torch it and it becomes all black and it's a Japanese traditional way to finish a building. Um, this is the courtyard. We try to reproduce um, Japanese garden with uh, local indigenous uh, plants and you know creating this idea of uh, Japanese courtyard and the space where you're looking out to the courtyard. So it's a very beautiful building, very serene that we designed to kind of reproduce the principles of Japanese architecture, but really using Canadian techniques of building. You look at these timber, you know, this we have so much wood in Canada. So we're we're putting it into the building as our structure, but also all of this was designed to be accessible because you can see that everything is flat. So if you want to come in with a wheelchair or, you know, whatever um, means of mobility, it's very easy to go through the building without any hindrance of barriers. This is what the entrance looks like. So this is in Killarney in, in uh, Calgary. We're hoping to start construction on this next year. And, you know, I show you this because I think that there's been so much impact and so much support in these two buildings that um, I think is important to kind of mention is that uh, this building won the Canadian Architect Award, the Calgary's Mayor Award. It went international, and the American Institute of Can Architects recognized it as a design award. And also Construction Canada recognized my implication with an Emerging Leader Award. So this is not a bragging page, but I think this is really just about recognizing that, you know, things that you do that are a bit different bring so much impact to the society that, you know, it just hits you overnight one day and suddenly you're you're like on all the front page covers of architecture magazines. But one part that's a little bit hurtful is that, you know, since COVID happened, there's like this renewed anti-Asian hate and we still see it today. And once COVID came out, people said that it was from China and then people just went down to Chinatown, destroyed the lions, destroyed the gates, vandalized commerces. So, you know, what makes me think is that, you know, what happened in this last 170 years, did we even learn anything, you know, that, you know, race, that something that happened, you know, across the, the other side of the world, just because they're Chinese, somehow people just recognizes us here who have been here for, the, for their whole lives as also, you know, become victims of that, of, of, our, of our race. So, so racism is not dead. So my last slide for future generations, these are my children. <laughs> my three-year-old son, she, he's dressed up in a girl's kimono, but he's my son and my twin girls. And we're celebrating Hinamatsuri, which is Japanese um, uh, uh, traditional day about um, celebrating the uh, young girls and their growth. Um, that I come back to this idea of names, 
because I named my three, my two girls, Zhang Siwo, which is the meaning of wishing for peace. My second girl is Zhang Xinhui, a wish for wish, wishing of love. And my son's name is Zhang Fan Sing, which is the meaning of spreading of stars. So I think this kind of summarizes my feeling is that even if it doesn't happen in my generation, the, the, the best I could wish for my children is one of peace, one of love, and one that talks about them being able to spread their wings um, to wherever light takes them. So this is just an acknowledgement that this is a project that was funded by the SSHRC Insight Development Grant, also the Royal Architectural Institute of Canada's Foundation Bursary. Um, and if any of you are in Calgary, there's also a very interesting interactive map that um, one of uh, a Calgary-based uh, New York artist who came to Calgary as a resident artist did um, this whole reproduction of Calgary Chinatown um, through uh, digital format. So you can actually do a, um, a tour of Chinatown, even if you're not in Calgary. So if you want to scan this QR code or go to, his, go to his website to see, you know, some of the buildings that I talked about, this is just an invitation to do a little bit more research. This is just my credits. Thank you. Merci. Thank you very much.